these are instances where local people felt like their communities was being taken over by the government and their identities were being denied and their cultures weren't being respected and they were slowly losing their sense of ownership and belonging to their societies and becoming more of something else that the government wanted them to be. And this sort of birthed um, the idea that an independent nation would allow them to be maintain their sense of belonging to these societies and their sense of ownership and pride in their cultures. For two years in succession, the crisis in Cameroon has been called the most neglected humanitarian crisis in the world by the Norwegian Refugee Council. And the criteria to make the top of this sinister list are the lack of media attention that a crisis is getting, a lack of funding that often comes as a result of that, and political and diplomatic neglect. So Cameroon scored extremely high on all of these mentioned criteria. To set the scene for you, Cameroon is a country in Central Africa that has formerly been colonized by various European powers, including Germany, France and Great Britain. And among other influences, France and Great Britain determined the language of the regions they occupied, which resulted into a linguistic difference within the country, meaning that the majority of Cameroon, so central, north, east, is French-speaking and the southwest of the region is English-speaking. And alongside issues of cultural identity and affiliation, this inhomogeneity of language caused a lot of organizational problems, including issues in national governance and eventually caused the English-speaking minority of Cameroon to experience political and economic marginalization. So here with me today is Ingrid Viban, an international development researcher at the University of Oxford, working on the depolitization and securitization of internally displaced persons in Cameroon. Ingrid also specializes in conflict-related research, such as forced migration, youth radicalization, conflict analysis and post-conflict reconstruction. I was lucky enough to get in touch with her for this episode to understand the origins and progression of the so-called Anglophone crisis. I would definitely argue that the conflict has been a gradual process in the making. I mean, the evidence of this spans from students in the 80s and 90s who basically claimed that they couldn't score as high grades as their Francophone counterparts because they wrote their papers in English and English was the second language for most of their professors. As a result, their professors sort of found this as an inconvenience, marking papers in English as opposed to French because they would have to translate the papers before grading them. And also there's uh, evidence of the government appointing French-speaking lieutenants and divisional officers to 
remote areas where most of the population is English speaking. And it's important to remember that this sort of makes the administration of the community extremely difficult. And also there has been evidence of different communities arguing for their representation in government. I mean, spanning from and the entire Anglophone community, which claims that it has not had a representation in powerful ministries, ministries that are essential to the administration and government of the nation, such as ministries of trade, ministries of transport, the treasury and economics and those sort of sectors that Anglophones are largely unrepresented in those areas to smaller communities who claim that they haven't even had any ministerial positions represented in their communities at all. And I think one important example of this marginalization and discrimination would be Jong-gu Foncha's resignation from the CPDM. John Nyu Foncha resigned from the Cameroon People's Democratic Movement in 1990. In his resignation letter, he mentioned that during his time in the party, he had been shunned by most of the Francophone members and the people he had brought into the party to represent the Anglophone community had been disrespected and their opinions hadn't been validated, Ingrid says. And he personally had requested uh, meetings with the president of the party to address some of these issues, but this audience was not granted. Even though the conflict can be described as a gradual process, there were some key moments leading up to the situation we see today. I think a lot of people think about the teachers and lawyers protests, which took place in November 2016. And I think what is important to remember about that process is that the teachers and lawyers as well were protesting some form of marginalization within their within their organization, which was basically teachers protesting the appointment of French-speaking teachers to English-speaking schools and lawyers protesting the use of civil law in common law courts. And I think that another important factor to remember about the protests is that, in fact, I would argue that the protests did not start the conflict. The conflict or the, the issue of cessation or federalism had already been brought up in 1992 after the president had won the 1992 presidential elections. The current president, Paul Bia, won the elections by a narrow victory against a prominent Anglophone politician known as John Fundy, who has also run for the position many years after. And during that time, he basically claimed that the elections had been rigged in order to prevent Anglophones from gaining control of an already largely centralized government. And as a result of this, many of his supporters began calling for secession or a, re a return to the federal system of government. And basically, this is just proof that the protests by the lawyers and teachers did not start the, 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 the issue of 
in Agrophone Independence. The discussion had already been going on for quite a while, and it was already a movement on its own. I just think that the protest by Anglophone teachers and lawyers was basically just defined the the new turn that the that the conflict was going to take and no one can say for sure whether that if they hadn't been processed the the conflict would have turned into what we have today with armed fighters battling government forces essentially Accounts from civilians have shown that it is often hard to differentiate between military forces that are supposed to protect them and aggressors. The conflict has two major factions engaged in physical altercations, which first of all are the Ambazonia Defense Forces who are fighting for to, to declare the new and independent nation known as Ambazonia and locally they are often referred to as Amber Boys and of course the government military forces and the, the, the government military forces also have as fighters the Navy, the Air Force but I think most commonly cited the, the most commonly cited presence of the military will be the Rapid Intervention Battalion, which is the president's elite trained force to combat insurgencies within the regions. And they are also currently combating Boko Haram in the north. So they have personnel from the same unit fighting in both regions. And I think in terms of weapons and training, the Amber Boys mostly use low-grade weapons such as hunting rifles and cutlasses. However, some of the higher-ranking fighters have been cited with military AK-47s. And also in the beginning of the conflict, the Amber Boys have been reported to have secret training camps in order to ensure success in case of encounters with the military. But at the same time, it's important to note that um, crimes and human rights violations have been committed on both sides. The military has been reported to conduct extreme interrogations to kidnap and rape students and young girls across across the regions throughout this throughout this combat, and also burn houses, forcing a lot of the IDPs into either exile in Nigeria or different regions of the country like Yaoundé and Douala. And I think it's also important to note that the Ambazonia Defense Forces have also committed crimes such as kidnappings and holding individuals for ransom and conducting interrogations of individuals who they suspected to be um, helpers or supporters of government forces, essentially. As I already mentioned in the beginning, the linguistic dimension of this crisis is only one way to look at it. We're going to hear more about the cultural and historical implications that affect this crisis in particular. I think um, one important example would be cases where ethnic groups report feeling like their traditional rulers and practices were not respected by government 
by government officials. For example, shaking hands with chiefs, which is forbidden for all members of the community, but government officials could often be seen um, exchanging handshakes with traditional leaders during occasions and public appearances. So this sort of appeared as some sort of disrespect for the culture and disrespect for the people. And I think another important instance was the ousting of the country's National Water Corporation in 1991 by residents of Kumbo in the Northwest region, where the residents claimed that the town's water project was initially owned and developed by the local community, but the government could not assume administration of the project, which it was trying to do at the time. So basically, the, the these are instances where local people felt like their communities was being taken over by the government and their identities were being denied and their cultures weren't being respected and they were slowly losing their sense of ownership and belonging to their societies and becoming more of something else that the government wanted them to be. And this sort of birthed um, the idea that an independent nation would allow them to be maintain their sense of belonging to these societies and their sense of ownership and pride in their cultures. The conflict can be traced back to Cameroon's colonial history as the country started off as a German colony and then was passed on to the United Nations to become a trust territory administered by both the French and the British after the First World War. And as a result of that process, this uh, trickled down into the independence movement and the, 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 the process of the process by which the country was granted independence, during which both the French and English-speaking regions had to decide whether or not they wanted to reunite and become one nation. This process began in 1961 with the reunification whereby the French and English-speaking territories were unified to form one nation under the federal system. So the two federal states were known as West Cameroon, composing of English speakers, and East Cameroon, composing of French speakers. However, the federal system was abolished by a referendum in 1972 by then-president Amadou Aichu, even though this violated the reunification agreement. Many English speakers who participated in the election in the election to abolish the federal system in in Cameroon reported that um the 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 ballot options or answers to the proposed abolished federal state were yes and we oui, which means we oui, which means yes in French so no matter what the the voter was choosing their 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 recorded vote would already be counted as yes whether that was their wish or not so the impression was that um, anglophones had been forced into a new political system in which they had less autonomy and which which they they weren't expecting or even see coming because the 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 election for the abolishment of the federal system was announced early three weeks prior to the actual election. So these are only a few instances where 
we could trace the 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 historical and cultural implications of the conflict. The current president of Cameroon, Paul Bia, has often been referred to as an incognito president because he does not make many public appearances and generally his public mention of the conflict has been extremely sparse, meaning also that he did not mention the conflict at all during his speech on the National Day of Cameroon, the 20th of May, nor in any other occasion that would have prompted him to, to mention a conflict that is so prevalent in the country. I believe the last time he mentioned the conflict was on January 24th of 2020 at a graduation ceremony for new military officers. And during the ceremony, he um, stated that negotiations towards a ceasefire and disarmament and reintegration of former fighters had been met with a lot of hostility. As such, um, I believe in my opinion that, that the choice of occasion and his message made it very clear that the use of military forces to combat the insurgency was going to remain was always going to remain an option, essentially. But nevertheless, even though he isn't um, completely present in the public eye, a lot of people or a, a, a lot of reporters do believe that he is engaged in the, in the peace talks and the negotiations and giving orders as to what the military must do in the northwest and southwest regions behind the scenes because at the end of the day it still is a largely centralized government and the president even though might be retreat from the pro public eye due to maybe health health issues still would prefer to keep um, most of these processes and knowledge of these processes to himself i think we can expect him to keep uh, negotiations and key processes as centralized as possible, as is expected of him, and also to keep his options on the table. Most uh, calls for a ceasefire have been met with hostility, as he explains. So he is obviously trying to tell the nation that even though there might be programs established for disarmament and reintegration of former fighters the option for military intervention he 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 will keep open essentially and so i think that that's what his role has been so far and that's what we can expect him to continue doing throughout the conflict until uh, a, a solution is found The independent nation, Ambazonia, as a sovereign nation, has not yet been recognized by the current communion government or the members of the international community. However, Ingrid says that it's important to understand its basis of legitimacy. Which, um, of course, it, it claims that this relies on evidence of the marginalization and discrimination over the years, which... I mentioned earlier at the start of the interview. However, as an entity, it does already operate as if it were legitimate in anticipation of 
uh, 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 the, the, the official grant of independence. So some of so some of these claims to legitimacy are also demonstrated by hallmarks of traditional nations, such as a, fl a flag, uh, an anthem, and establishing its own constitution, which have of of course all been declared illegal by the government of Cameroon. And as for sovereignty, its ambitions are very clear. I think. Um, as a hypothetical sovereign nation, the group aims to independently administer the northwest and southwest regions independently of the government of Cameroon. So this means that uh, it, it aims to be self-sufficient economically and health-wise and any other uh, assets that it takes to run a nation. However, most police stations public schools and hospitals are still under government administration, which proves uh, difficult for them to establish full sovereignty. But that is not to downplay the amount of power that they are able to exercise across the regions. The Gulf Sands, for example, which are declared by the Ambazonia Defense Forces are widely respected especially in small in small towns and i think that um also local events in some of these small towns do not run smoothly until the ambazonia defense forces have given their permission so they basically provide taxes to the population in order to gain access to different areas or at, at different points or entries into different regions, they would have established checkpoints and to basically stamp on their, 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 their sovereignty over the sovereignty of the nation of Cameroon. Most identity cards have the, 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 the Cameroon national flag cut off from them in order to signify that an individual no longer identifies as Cameroonian. At this point we have heard a lot about the impact of Cameroon's colonial history on the conflict that is unfolding there today. And most of the time, the focus is on France and Great Britain simply for the very obvious impact uh, that they left on the country in terms of language and also the time period um, in which they colonized the region. But today, I want to shine a light on Germany's colonial history as Cameroon started out as a German colony for over 30 years before the French and the British came. So today I'm going to explore more of the German historical responsibility in terms of colonialism with Lisa Treps. My name is Lisa Treps and I am a current graduate from the Institute of Development Studies and I'm also a research assistant there right now. Um, I have been involved in anti-racial discourse and activism during my time in the UK as well, so that's why I'm really passionate about this topic of um, the colonial past in Africa and historical responsibility for Germany as well. 
So particularly for all the Germans listening, this is the historical lesson that you never had in high school. So there we go. Um, so the territory that we call Cameroon today was colonized by both German powers and then later by French and British colonialists. But European powers were there um, way before, like the Portuguese, later the Dutch, French, Spanish and British. Um, they were there as traders and missionaries and uh, the context to European powers were also always connected to exploitation in some way or the other. Um, in the 14th and or like 15th till the mid 19th century, particularly with the slave trade. But German traders came there firstly in around 1862. And the 1870s were the beginning of the so-called new imperialism, which is the desire for expansion and political monetary dominance in Africa, but basically all around the world. In 1884, at the Congo conference in Berlin, Former Chancellor Otto von Bismarck invited 13 countries, but there were no representatives from African countries. And this conference was establishing the rules for the conquest of Africa and the so-called race for Africa began. And if we go to Cameroon now, um, Chancellor Bismarck and the back then German Empire signed an agreement with King Bell and King Aqua in Cameroon under which Cameroon became a German protectorate. And Cameroon also remained a German colony between 1884 and 1916. But the First World War changed everything. And then British, French and Belgian troops drove the Germans into exile from Cameroon and other German colonies in Africa. And the ter territory was then split between the British and the French. So one could probably say that German colonialism laid down the foundation for the French and the British, who then continued to strategically exploit the region. I mean, people did not forget about the violence and force they've experienced, even though the British and French colonialism is a bigger part of their memory in some ways. But the territories were forcefully and strategically conquered and massacres took place. And in today's perspective, one would probably say that colonialism has violated the human rights of the people who've been colonized. Um, there's also this popular case of Manga Bell um, that underlines the cruelty of colonialism in Cameroon. He was the son of the back then King Bell, who also signed a protectorate treaty. And he went to Germany for his education, which a lot of privileged Cameroonians did. And he was very open for friendship with the German settlers. But when he returned to Cameroon, he had complained to the authorities in Berlin about the injustices his people have experienced to a more restrictive law, evictions and forced labor. So his advocacy for his people was also his death sentence because he was then executed in 1914. But he was one of the um, resistance fighters that is quite famous today. Yeah, I don't think that there's a good revision of history on the colonial past of Germany and Cameroon. Even people from former colonies have not really had a proper revision of the colonial past because often the colonial educational system was then overtaken after independence. So a lot of schools were teaching about European history instead of their own history. So probably only people with an interest in history would know or were aware about the topic. I mean, also because of buildings or places of memory, like statues, they could refer back to the colonial area. But 
in a school system as such, there's not much happening also in former colonies. Of course, that has changed as well with um, much more uh, decolonial discourse. But yeah, people have generally a very vague idea about Germany as a colonial power. They much more think about yeah, Great Britain and France as colonial powers that have influenced how the country today looks like. Even though Germany is now making more effort to address the colonial past and also encourage decolonial discourse with its former colonies, there is still a lot to be done also on the level of education on the general public. So thank you for listening to that and for also making me have to confront this because, as I said in the beginning, this is not something that is usually on a regular German curriculum. So I'm glad I know more about it now, especially in connection with the conflict that we're analyzing now in the point of view of colonialism. Well, one could say that the conflict is linguistically driven because it is between the Francophone and the Anglophone people. Um, but if we go back into histi history, initially the people of Cameroon did not speak English and they did not speak French and they did not speak German. They spoke over 250 indigenous languages and speaking German, French and English was forced onto them during colonial times as well. And they put a lot of language policies in place um, that were not really in favor of the emergence of an indigenous language that could easily serve as a national or official language at independence. So that's why it became French and English. But yeah, the crisis is not only linguistically driven between the Francophone and Anglophone parts, but the conflict is also about socioeconomic marginalization, unequal access to resources and opportunities and high levels of power imbalance between the Francophone and Anglophone parts of the country. And this is also a remnant of colonialism because the two parts were differently administrated by the colonial powers. And so people differ in their history of political interaction. I mean, of course, it is hard to predict what would have happened if the colonial period would not have happened. But the trigger of the conflict is language and culture. And the culture and languages spoken that have triggered the conflict are colonial. And based on that reasoning, one could even say that calling the conflict Anglophone crisis is a problem because the people who experience the crisis are first and foremost Africans before they are the languages uh, that were forced on them. So it was basically the foreign languages and cultures that, that successfully pit people of the same heritage against each other. Looking more closely on how the conflict manifests and what people in the country are experiencing, I was lucky enough to connect with Esther Oman, a incredible woman who is leading an NGO in the country. She has worked on development issues in Cameroon for nearly 20 years, particularly in the southwest region of the country. And she is currently coordinating humanitarian activities with UN agencies and she is the executive director of Reach Out Cameroon, the NGO I was talking about. She's the general coordinator of the Southwest Northwest Women Task Force. She was also awarded for leading women peace builders 
I'm in awe and I'm so happy she is filling us in and how she is alleviating the consequences of the conflict, especially for women and children that are particularly affected. Our mission is to support underprivileged groups in communities on health, work creation, human rights and governance. The challenges of working women in conflict zone are diverse. Uh, they are diverse, uh, but I will name the very few. The very first one is the high rate of insecurity. Where we go to those communities and we don't know what will happen the next moment. Many people are being killed left and right. So the very first one is about the insecurity. The second one is remoteness of the area. As uh, remote communities, it is difficult for us to go to those areas when we do not have adequate means of transportation, when we do not have adequate finances to address their issues. We work with women and children in hard to reach areas which we call the remotest areas of the region where government's policies have little or no impact at all. Why? Because uh, this category of beneficiaries that we work with are cut off completely from the outer world. They do not have information and information do not seldom get to them. They do not have access to basic services. And so for that reason, in order to make sure that they enjoy to the fullest their rights to access to basic services and other livelihoods programs, we go to them and take programs uh, to them. The involvement of women in peace processes is a crucial asset for the conflict resolution progress. So ISTA tells us how they are currently supporting women and what still needs to be done. The presence of women is still very, very uh, uh, low and we see they are underrepresented and their views really are not considered this far because we see at the outcome of whatsoever thing that is being done and remember what the women have been saying and there's so many statements that have been issued out with no headway I will see we still have a long way to go in women's uh, participation in peace processes. One of the success stories Easter tells us about plays out in the Pakasi Peninsula in the southwest region of Cameroon. The Pakasi Peninsula was a subject of regional tension between Nigeria and Cameroon until in 2002 the International Court of Justice gave judgment in favor of Cameroon under the Green Tree Agreement, meaning that the Pakasi Peninsula was officially a Cameroonian peninsula. But the transfer of the people that inhabited the peninsula was very neglected and um, failed promises of resettlement and shortcomings in the resettlement process enabled very, very difficult living situations. They, had a, uh, they were committing incest. The children were being abused sexually. There was high rate of of rape and there were no economic activities in the Pakasi Peninsula and as such women did not know their left or right they had never met institutions that make them to be known as citizens of this country they have never men met with policy and policy makers you know and authorities in order to voice out their pains and concerns to give out their needs they have never 
it so happened that we went to that community and we were being hijacked by the women who drew our attention to the sufferings that they were undergoing with their children. And therefore, we decided to come up with uh, a package for that area. And that's how we started educating them, creating awareness, training them. And uh, we took them out of that area to the, the capital city of the Southwest region, which is Boya. They had to meet with the governor. They had to meet with the mayors, other female councillors. They went to the radio and spoke and voiced out their concerns so that the world will hear. They had to go and meet educational institutions so that they could be taking the children, sending the children to school here. And we also did prevention of early false early child early false marriages, which was rampant there. And we had memorandum of understandings established with the traditional leaders, administrative, religious, and so forth, which uh, brought about a drastic curb in the phenomenon. And so, as a result of that, we started training them on local governance. You know, we trained them on the implication on local governance. And today we have female mayors in that area. We have a senator and we have councillors, which is our pride. This is one of the success stories among the so many which we have when it comes to women and meeting their needs. The crisis in Cameroon and all the different dimensions it unfolds into is devastatingly underreported and there are some things that the international community can consider in order to change this unbearable circumstance. The international community can come in to support us in order to scale up uh, women's uh, skills and knowledge on negation and peace building so that we all can rally our voices, make them much stronger for better uh, representation. This is the very first one that uh, the international community can do. The international uh, community can better serve us by uh, ensuring that uh, there is recognition, that there is protection, and there is support of those who are involved in peace building. Why? Because we have so many threats around us, intimidations and so on, and there is no protection mechanism put in place for women peace builders or human rights defenders. And uh, we talk about support. We talk about localizing the need to localize uh, our efforts, because we know the communities, the communities know us many times international organizations come and they get it all while we wallow here in pains and suffering and uh, we do not see the great impact in our communities whereas if they had given us we would have better served our communities so we want to be recognized for the little that we are doing already in peace work and we want to ensure that uh, we are being protected and that we can effectively carry out our work at local level with support which could be provided to us because the whole matter boils down to support. If we are not supported, then we cannot do the work and then we cannot be strengthened to get the commission which we deserve. I think that sustainable peace will be a long and hard process. We are hearing from Ingrid again about the directions the peace process is taking. 
no one can say for sure how long the process will last but i think that first on the agenda for the peace process should be a ceasefire the most promising possibilities for a ceasefire have been reported negotiations between jailed separatist leaders and government representatives with the united nations general secretary acting as a third party facilitating the negotiations and um, according to journalists who spoke with separatist uh, leaders explained that their demands include um, requests for all prisoners jailed as a result of the crisis to be granted to be released and amnesty to be granted to those who have shown support for the movement currently living abroad or under asylum in order to declare a ceasefire to its fighters. However, the minister, when the Minister of Communications um, reported that those, com- that, that those comments weren't consistent with reality, this sort of uh, put into question the, 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 the question of whether the, the, the negotiations process had actually happened or not. So even though he explained that the, the, the negotiations or the terms of the negotiations weren't consistent with reality, he did not confirm or deny that the negotiations had not taken place as well. And I think it is possible to theorize that the president also sees these terms as being too lenient, especially since he had already declared their actions as crimes of treason punishable to the full extent of the law. But nevertheless, I think peace talks with the separatist leaders should continue, especially since these are the first known negotiations involving actually involving both part both sides of the conflict because when we think back to the the first peace talk peace talks organized by the government in september of 2017 the separatist leaders boycotted these talks as a ruse or as an attempt to to, to capture them and imprison them but even more important than securing a ceasefire is making sure that the that 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 the ceasefire lasts be, for many years beyond the end of the conflict, and one way the government is attempting attempting this is by organizing the country's first ever regional elections in an effort to grant the northwest and southwest regions more autonomy which, uh, of course, these regional elections were held only a few days ago today. However, I'm afraid that these efforts might fall short of their goal because many locals do not already trust the electoral system. Some individuals weren't aware that regional elections were even taking place on the said day. And, of course, within... The northwest and southwest regions, the Ambazonia Defense Forces, have already declared that any participants within Anglophone regions would be arrested and detained for participating in such a government process, which they, 
regard to be illegal. So I believe the best route to ensure um, peace and sustainable peace long term and beyond the ceasefire would be for the government to admit possible wrongdoings during the reunification process and the plebiscite of 1972. Even if th- th- this doesn't uh, lead to much, I think that at least providing a forum through which these issues can be um, discussed and debated is not necessarily like a plate admission of 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 wrongdoing, but at least providing the forum through which individuals can begin to discuss these matters would really address the roots of the crisis. episode helpful useful informative entertaining um please feel free to share it with a friend share it wherever you want to share it um really i think we can have a big part in especially in terms of tumult to to do something against the lack of media representation at least that um i think is something that we really have so much power over and I'm so grateful that I got the chance to to produce this episode with all these wonderful people so yeah and for a final announcement um, I finally have a website <laughs> um, you can find Tumult now at tumult.online very alternative handle I know <laughs> but um, as you can tell, I'm not really obsessed with the word podcast. And I think I also don't want to limit Tumult as a platform to the podcast, even though it's going to be the pillar of it. Um, yeah, I just want to be going by Tumult because I love that name and it's so representative of what I'm trying to do and the stuff that I report about. So, yeah, check it out. I wrote an article on, like, a sort of behind-the-scenes article on how I produced this episode and all the things that, you know, I dealt with um, from having almost no knowledge until producing it and and also the struggles that comes with that anyway. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for making it until here. Um, Thank you so much for supporting and listening to Tumult. Thank you. I'll see you and hear you very soon and take care.